Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts on Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Caroline, uh, this week, I, we are first of all coming to you, listener, a day late. Mm-hmm. But that is because... And beca- a dollar short. And a de- well, no. No, we're coming with a full, f- a fistful of dollars today, I think. Mm. And that's because it was the 4th of July holiday, and we had some family stuff to do, and Caroline had a bunch of work to do, as she always does, <laughs> and new house, and anyway, uh, a day late, but also, hey, it's 4th of July week, and so we have... I don't know if it's a patriotic episode per <laughs> se, but but uh, we have an American history-focused episode today, Carrie. We do. And Sean, we've talked about the gruesome underbelly of some of the more, I guess, perceived to be refined parts of history, like uh, how we revealed the disgusting practices at Versailles and how the nightmare winter at Jamestown forced some of America's first colonists to become cannibals to survive. Yes, I remember those uh, well, often in my dreams. <laughs> well, today we'll be talking about the real horrors of another time period of American history, the period of and surrounding the American Revolutionary War. Of course, many self-described patriots look back at this era with fondness and even reverence, elevating our founding fathers to nearly godlike status and those who fought for American freedom as untarnishable heroes. But while they were heroes, and the Founding Fathers certainly were great men, there was plenty of unpleasantness and even grossness surrounding the period, especially where the war was concerned. Hey, uh, you have to look no further than that John Adams miniseries (laughs) for some medical and hygiene horrors. Just the teeth alone, I guess. the realistic teeth of the time, (laughs) and there's an amputation aboard a ship in that show, Mm -hmm. and it's brutal. One thing I think it's important to note before we begin today, uh, we will not be covering the plight of the indigenous peoples of America, nor the atrocity of slavery in this episode, even though, of course, they are the worst horrors of the period. Um, Both are gigantic topics worthy of being explored separately. But also, I don't know if we're the ones to do those topics full justice. It's still kind of a difficult thing that a lot of people are talking about now is is who covers these sorts of topics and who does so properly. Um, I don't know if everyone would say he's, I don't know if everyone would agree he's the one to do it, but I really love Dan Carlin's recent uh, podcast on the American slave, well, the North Atlantic slave trade. If anybody right. wants to learn more about that, I'd point him there. Yeah, and of course, you know, Dan Carlin, he's a white guy. I mean, he doesn't have that perspective on it, but he's very measured in all of his history. I think Hardcore History is one of the best history podcasts out there. But um, while it's important to discuss these issues, especially considering many people like to pretend our country has been faultless in their pursuit of power since the very beginning, um, Sean and I also have to be aware that we simply do not have the proper perspective to fully understand the devastation caused to the victims in both cases. Now, of course, you may say we cover true crime plenty. Uh, What's the difference? You cover those victims. But it is a big difference when we're talking about the decimation of entire cultural and ethnic traditions. 
Sean and I are both products of families that immigrated to America sometime, what, 18, 1900s for you guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. And we have no ties to the original American colonies. Um, but it's important that we all recognize that this country along with the blood of the revolutionaries, was also built on the sweat and pain of the African slaves forced to work here and the bodies of the indigenous that were killed or driven out of their homelands in the name of manifest destiny. So perhaps it's the wrong choice to not cover these issues at present or, you know, in their own separate episodes right after this. But for now, we're going to err on the side of not doing so at this moment with full knowledge that these were truly the greatest horrors of the time period in question. Now, some good references to explore these topic further, topics further are the podcast's 1619, which examines the long shadow of American slavery, and the podcast This Land, which functions as a primer on the history of land theft in Native America through the lens of a 1999 murder case and its resulting 2020 Supreme Court ruling on tribal sovereignty, and of course, the aforementioned hardcore history. But now that we've in- introduced all of the concerns, let's get into the stories we'll be covering today. The hygienic horrors, deadly conditions, and wartime atrocities that made the American Revolution one of the dirtiest, bloodiest times in American history. You keep coming back to hygienic horrors and medical quackery. <laughs> okay. all, all the gross stuff is your favorite. Yeah, well, because I don't think we talk about it enough. You know, everyone knows that amputation was terrible, but we don't talk about how everything else was just so gross. And we will start with that. We'll start with the dirtiness factor in a place you may not have considered. Independence Hall. Oh, the august birthplace of this nation, Carrie. Yes. If you've seen the musical Romp 1776, you at least have a sense of the sweltering hot conditions in the so-called room where it happened. And a sense of Mr. Feeney's singing voice, which is nice. Uh, I love 1776. It's not Hamilton. It's much... Dryer is a weird word for it because it's kind of more of like a like a lighthearted romp. I mean... It is, but it's really pretty long for a lighthearted romp and a lot of the music is kind of slow and plotting and I, I But I think, I think the acting in it, like the guys who play John Adams um, and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, they're all really great. And I'm probably going to watch it while you edit this. So, ha. So, the room where it happened. That's Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the Declaration of Independence was signed from representatives from all 13 American colonies. Now, right now on the East Coast, during the same time of summer, but almost 250 years later, right now, we're experiencing an oppressive heat wave with humidity levels comparable to the Amazon rainforest, I've read. Oh, and listener. And I'm currently schwitzing right now. If you could have seen the, the heartbreak on poor Carrie's face when I told her the fan would be picked up on the mics and, and, and could not be pointed right at her face. Oh, my God. I had it on low. I couldn't, I couldn't hear it. Listeners, hold on. I need, to, I need to do a test. Can you hear this fan while I'm talking to you? Is it, is it, can you hear it? Is it loud? Is it in the microphone? It's on right now. Did you even know that? No? Okay. Now it's off. They know it's off. They could hear uh, it. I'm so hot. Anyway, nowadays, when we're not recording podcasts that depend on clear audio, we have the luxury of running an air conditioner to cool down our surroundings. Or uh, if you're like me and Sean, you're staying with my grandma on Long Island over the July 4th weekend and you're just sweating to death while she complains of being cold. Thank you, Claire. 
Um, but our comfort nowadays can be insured as long as we have access to air conditioners and fans. But in 1776, of course, electricity wasn't even really a thing yet, let alone air conditioning. So it's summer in Philadelphia and the weather is awful. It's incredibly hot for most of the time our founding fathers are arguing over the question of American independence and eventually the inclusions in the eventual Declaration of Independence. So you got a bunch of gouty old guys mm-hmm. in seven layers of linen oh, yeah. screaming at each other. Mm-hmm. So one of the big names of the crew, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, author of the Declaration, and yes, a slave owner, kept a weather diary for the time period because he was also a big nerd who liked facts and notations. In fact, uh, Jefferson purchased one of his nearly 20 thermometers that he owned on July 4th, 1776 itself from a Philly merchant named John Sparhawk for the equivalent of $300 in today's money. So he had 20 of them total, by the way. So if they're all around the same price, it was an expensive hobby to have. But he decided on the day he signed the Declaration of Independence, he just had to have another thermometer. He's a pretty rich guy. Yes. You know, I mean, it's like Again, he, he could slaves. be collecting cars or whatever. <laughs> well, they didn't have that. So he was just an eccentric thermometer collector. It's slash uh, swivel chair inventor. Sure. On July 1st, 1776, Jefferson began his first surviving meteorological diary, which kicked off a daily routine lasting the rest of his life. He would check thermometers once at dawn and once in the late afternoon to record the daily high and low temperatures. Okay, this is a man who needed video games in his life. You're that bored. Mm -hmm. The 1st of July, 1776, was extremely humid, with highs in the 80s, Fahrenheit for our overseas friends. And by the afternoon, skies had darkened, winds increased, and thunderstorms were forming in the area. Because, again, really high humidity. The next day, July 2nd, which many consider the real day of American independence to celebrate, not the 4th, this day would be slightly cooler in the 70s, but added frequent rain showers into the mix. The 3rd would be sunny, with highs around 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and the 4th was mostly sunny, hitting 72 degrees by 9 a.m. that morning and 76 by 1 p.m. Jefferson missed the late afternoon temperature check because he was a little busy taking care of something else, signing the Declaration of Independence. Philadelphia resident Phineas Pemberton also recorded a temperature of 76 degrees on the afternoon of July 4th, 1776, quite appropriately. And mildly, I would say. That's not a super hot day. Oh, We're we're shooting way past that on on the... uh, A Philly 76 is pretty intense. Plus high humidity. Yeah, sure. But it's I wouldn't call 76 while wearing 20 layers of clothes mild. But I wouldn't call it a crazy summer heat wave. (laughs) Well, I think. It was pretty oppressively hot. It's always presented as being pretty oppressively hot during this time. And there's also the noted humidity and thunderstorms. So the air was thick, especially indoors. And all of these men were shoved into one room for the duration of the debates and signing. The now named Independence Hall was located in the Pennsylvania State House in Philadelphia and was chosen as the location for the Second Continental Congress to discuss the concept of American independence. Because it had a great stairwell for singing. (laughs) Well, apparently, according to the movie, it does. 
They met there beginning in May 1775, just after shots had been fired at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts, and the Congress realized it needed to prepare for war and establish a continental army. And it did, appointed George Washington as the commander-in-chief. That would eventually become the role that the eventual president would take on. But who, me? The guy in a literal military uniform? <laughs> yeah, he showed up full full regalia. So it was only in June 1776 when Virginia delegate Richard Henry Lee put forth the res- resolution for independence. So that's over a year they've been bitching at each other about this. Voting was postponed until all of the needed delegates could be persuaded to support the idea, with a committee of five men working simultaneously to draft a document of independence, eventually resulting in Jefferson doing most of the work, because group projects have not changed a bit even since colonial times. And he was a guy particularly unsuited to group projects, I think. Yeah. But here's the thing. This state house, now known as Independence Hall, was not built to fit the entire American Congress. Give or take a few at any given time, that number totaled 60 men just in the Congress, according to the blueprints. And yeah, I went architectural on this one. (laughs) That's my wife. The assembly room, where most of the debating occurred and where the declaration would eventually be signed, had dimensions of around 40 feet long by 38 feet wide. It's not huge. I've been there. If your parents are history nerds like mine, you've been there too, I'm sure. The internet tells me the average American living room nowadays measures around 340 square feet or around 20 feet long by 16 feet wide. So the whole area of the assembly room in Independence Hall is the size of about two to three modern American living rooms. That's too small to comfortably fit 60 full-grown men. Seated for most of it, and, or, mm-hmm. or again, like, standing Yelling at each other, banging on tables. Yes. The space was cramped as hell, and it was cramped as hell for over a year while these men debated whether America should declare independence. So then we get to sanitation. They're like, listen, we, we called the building Independence Hall. If we don't vote independence, <laughs> what, was, what was the point? Sanitation was not exactly tip-top, so to speak, back in the 1700s, even for a relatively large modern state house. Is this still like dumping shit buckets out of upper floor windows times? Uh, Well, they didn't. They had the shit buckets. They didn't have any indoor plumbing uh, in this state house. So you factor in there's way too many dudes around um, and you have an immediate problem. There was no indoor plumbing and so no toilets or running water inside the building. So not even could you not take a second to just run to the bathroom in peace and get away from like John Adams yelling at everyone. Um, You couldn't even wash your face or your hands if needed, especially when the heat set in. And what were you to do during important debates when all members had to remain present within the assembly room? Then you have ye old chamber pots. What, just in the corners of the room? I guess so. Chamber pots were utilized as makeshift waste disposal for those who couldn't or didn't want to exit the building to access a toilet. Now, in your typical home of the time, each bedroom would maybe have a chamber pot, and so the hygienic issues were limited because there were many less people to deal with. But in Independence Hall, you have to imagine there are maybe 
dozens of chamber pots floating around for all of these men to use. So, Carrie, those uh, Bohemian Grove fellows we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Well, they were at least outside. Though. But they're just following in a proud American <laughs> tradition of, uh, of, of great men pulling their penises <laughs> out in the same room. Well, I think that's a humanity tradition. Efforts were made to empty these chamber pots regularly, but considering there were up to 60 guys in the area, plus any workers and aides and people like that, um, and much fewer cleaners to go around. No, it's like a porta potty on St. Patrick's Day. That thing is that thing is sloshing over, right? Yes. So you could see them getting overtaken quite quickly. And so you have just Tons of urine and feces-filled chamber pots scattered across the building where the Declaration of Independence was being signed. This does sound like St. Patrick's Day in Philadelphia. (laughs) Yeah, it's not exactly the austere John Trumbull painting image of the scene we all have in our minds. And, oh, that smell. So you've got the chamber pots working away in the heat. Yep, they're all over full. Yes, and let's return to the weather uh, conditions for the time of the signing. It was hot and it was humid. So if these pots weren't emptied constantly, you have this stinking waste baking in the oppressive heat. And maybe just as significantly, you have up to 60 plus men baking in the oppressive heat. How many flies, give or take, would you guess? Well, here's the problem, Sean. Often, if they tried to open the windows, the flies would just come in in swarms, probably attracted by some of the smell. And so they would have to keep windows closed very often, trapping the heat inside. There's no air circulation. There's no fresh air. There's no stink getting out. It's just all ruminating in there. My brain is just catching something now. Did you say feces at some point? Oh, yeah. They're shitting in the chamber pots. Nobody's shitting in the chamber pots. Nobody? Be real. Benjamin Franklin's just going over there and dropping trow. Benjamin Franklin especially dropping trow. Are you kidding me? He was a little freak. We'll talk about him eventually. We'll talk about him in the Hellfire Club. But, so yes, you have... 60 stinky, sweaty men. There's no electric fans or air conditioners, just sometimes open windows. More often than not, there isn't because of the flies. Uh, And you have maybe some hand fans try and deliver some relief. You have to remember these guys aren't wearing golf shorts and polo tees to this occasion, and it's beyond suits. Silk cravats. The founding fathers were sporting full fits of breeches, waistcoats, frock coats, shirts, stockings, and shoes, as well as any underoos, um, even in the middle of summer, along with powdered wigs. The clothing was made of as light a cotton as possible for the heat, but still they were fully covered in multiple layers, even in temps of the high 80s and beyond. But you picture, like, 12 angry men. These guys are taking off their jackets. They're rolling up their shirt sleeves. Yeah, but no one's taking off a waistcoat. So those are those are kind of like long vests. They, they, they don't have sleeves. You have your long sleeves under that. Many so buttons they in might, the front. They might take off a frock coat and a wig. That's it. And the wigs. So the first of these were made from goat and horse hair. And since they were never really properly washed, they smelled pretty awful and tended to attract lice. Nobody washed them? It was very hard to properly wash a wig. Uh, They're barely properly washing themselves, I'm sure. Plus, a lot of these guys are riding stag with their wives at home. 
So a lot of them aren't washing their clothing or wigs a ton anyway. This might sound like a crazy question. Mm. Why not human hair wigs? Why, why wouldn't that be the first thing you go to? I don't know. I just read that the first wigs that were used were goat and horse hair. Human hair would not have been much better for the issue of lice. Um, the powder that was put on these wigs was usually made up of finely ground starch scented with lavender to combat the stink and the bugs, but it probably just resulted in the wearer smelling like a goat going on a hot date. Oh, Egyptians would put a little cone of wax and honey in their uh, hair and let it melt all day. Yeah, it's a similar, similar idea. So everyone is hot, sweaty, cramped, pretty unwashed, possibly lice-ridden, and taking dumps in chamber pots while America was making its very solemn declaration of independence. So it's lovely. Mm. However, the conditions for those actually fighting in the Revolutionary War would be much, much worse, especially on the American side. After the break, we'll explore some of those horrific conditions, as well as some of the worst atrocities visited upon troops and civilians during the Revolutionary War era. Oh, I'm just thinking about the smell of those frock coats. Oh, God. That's an atrocity. <laughs> For sure. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Welcome back. Uh, we are sitting in the studio, the air conditioning's off, the fans are off, and, uh... Or are they? It's starting to smell... Well, no, they're off. Yeah, I could, it's, I'm sweating. It's starting to smell like Independence Hall in here, that's hey, all I'm saying. Hey, speak for yourself. I am speaking for myself. <laughs> um, okay, so Caroline, you had teased before the break that we were going to get into the real horrors here, um... The stuff that, that our boys had to deal with in mm -hmm. the American Revolution. Yes. So nearly 150,000 men fought as part of the Continental Army over the years of the Revolutionary War, which spanned from Lexington and Concord in April 1775 to the British surrender in September 1783. However, we never had 150,000 soldiers fighting at once. At its largest, the army had about 17,000 active members. But then that would be plus some militias throughout. Yeah, and they were kind of equivalent to militia, too. They were really, for the most part, untrained upon joining. They had backgrounds as diverse as farming, trading, and preaching. 
there were even some slaves who were offered their freedom in exchange for their participation. Oh, Carrie, we watched um, we watched the great Mel Gibson film. The, oh, that'll the come back later. Yeah. Um, all of these groups are represented in, in mm-hmm. the Continental uh, Regiment we see there. Mm-hmm. A soldier would either earn money or land as payment. So many from poorer classes joined up to pursue a better life for themselves and their families. Revolutionary War soldiers died far more from the effects of disease than they did in active combat. Because of the scrappy nature of the Continental Army, the troops, especially compared to the British enemies, were underfunded and often underfed with poor conditions in their camps. Clothes were worn out, shelters were damp, and conditions were much more unsanitary than even the stinky sweat house of Independence Hall. And it was exhausting even keeping conditions unsanitary. When not engaged in combat, soldiers had three duties to attend to. Manual labor, which included digging latrines, clearing fields, or building fortifications. And there was also uh, guard duty and daily drills to practice musket work and marching formations. But that was if they were even healthy enough to do so because disease was rampant in Continental Army camps. What are we talking about? Dysentery? We're probably talking about dysentery. Well, first, there was the issue of smallpox. The smallpox epidemic lasted from 1775 to 1782, with the high death tolls pushing George Washington to implement the first mass immunization policy in American history starting in 1777, which cut down the brutality of the spread. No vaccines for (laughs) our kids! Yeah, the foremost founding father of America actually considered it crucial that everyone received their vaccinations. No (laughs) Fauci-ouchie! Smallpox affected the American troops much more disproportionately than the British troops because the latter were much more likely to be immune to the disease, either due to prior inoculation or natural exposure. But Washington's soldiers, concentrated in camps, were very susceptible to brutal and devastating smallpox outbreaks. Washington learned the hard way that inoculation was vital to the survival of his troops. He had decided against inoculation in 1775 during the Siege of Boston due to concerns that it would trigger an outbreak. But as a result, the British may have used the the disease um, as like a biological weapon to force infected Bostonians to leave the city. And when the British gave the city up in 1776, the outbreak became even harder to control and Boston refugees spread smallpox throughout wherever they went in Massachusetts and beyond. At the same time, continental forces besieging Quebec suffered heavy losses due to the disease, which had a quick grasp on the already sickly and exhausted soldiers. This is when Washington issued his order to have all troops inoculated, which he wrote in a letter to Continental Congress President John Hancock. If you've seen the amazing HBO miniseries John Adams, You've seen that immunization was taken very seriously, and many non-troops, including John Adams' wife and children, took the step to get inoculated themselves. They're very scared. They don't know what's happening, really. They get cut, and then they put some actual like virus under their skin. Mm-hmm. And that was an old-timey vaccine. They would just take... Literally, I, th- I think what they would literally do at the time is take pus from the sores of an infected person. And that's what they do in the show, yeah. Rub them under your cut. Yep. Yikes. 
Smallpox was not the only concern for the typical revolutionary soldier, not by far. You could contract typhoid from contaminated water, or if you had been wounded, you could contract a terrible infection. Medicine was not super helpful at this time in history, and medical care was performed in the same unsanitary, cramped conditions as the soldiers lived and slept in. In fact, often enough, an injured soldier was better off just trying to tend to his own health and injuries rather than seeking medical treatment and possibly making the situation worse. They're like, what, what, what's going on? It's a tickle in your throat? Cut off the throat. Yeah, yeah get on the table, get the bone saw. The surviving amputation kits from the times were brutal, and there was little in the way of pain relief. If you had to have your arm or leg cut off, God forbid, or a bullet dug out of your skin, there was a high likelihood that the site would become infected, with many more soldiers dying of these infections than the initial wounds themselves. By the end of the war, nine, shoulder- nine soldiers had died of disease for every one killed in combat. They haven't like invented opiates yet, right? No. Like real real painkillers. So no. it really There is, might be like chloroform, maybe. But a lot of these guys are just getting like the swig of whiskey treatment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And a, a wooden bar between their teeth. Clothing for soldiers, unlike those for the upper class members of the Second Continental Congress, were made of wool and were terrible both for the brutally cold winters and steaming hot summers where the battles of the revolution were fought. For instance, uh, remember the famous image of George Washington crossing the Delaware? Well, that was from nighttime on Christmas Day, 1776, and everyone, including Washington, was on the verge of freezing to death. All the men were pelted with snow and sleet from a currently raging nor'easter, and the ships had to navigate between large floating ice blocks in the river for hours or risk hitting them and sinking. But it was an important point in the war. The hired Hessian troops fighting for the British were forced to retreat the next morning at the Battle of Trenton, resulting in a stunning victory for the Continental Army. But more deaths came from succumbing to the elements than from being killed in combat by the Hessians. People just froze to death en masse. Well, this winter and the following one was even worse, right? Yeah, most infamously, the winter at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania was one of the most brutal, and I'm going to use that word a lot in this episode, brutal, but this winter was the most brutal in American wartime history. The Continental Army camped at Valley Forge for the winter of 1777 to 1778, and more soldiers died of hypothermia and starvation during that time than at the eventual battle. 11,000 soldiers were posted up that winter in Valley Forge with rain, snow, and freezing temperatures making the situation extremely miserable. And no food. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they barely have hardtack. Eating boot leather. Mm Mm-hmm. If they had boot leather, leather, because the army lacked viable shelter, blankets, winter coats, and shoes, with a third of the men estimated to not have proper footwear. So they well, either they had no them. shoes or partial sh- I mean, maybe. The men remained at Valley Forge from December 1777 to June 1778, and up to 2,000 soldiers died from disease by the end, likely exacerbated by malnutrition. Oftentimes, however, atrocities were not perpetuated to both sides of the war by Mother Nature or by disease. They were inflicted on each other violently, even before the official fighting began. 
Returning again to the John Adams miniseries, there's a part early on where a British tax officer is tarred and feathered by a rampaging Boston mob. And make no mistake, tarring and feathering was a terrible experience. It was public torture that would often result in lifelong complications and wounds, if not death. Do you support this, Sam? Violent and barbaric acts to enforce a political principle, Sam! Is that, is that Paul Giamatti? Is that Paul Giamatti in our podcast studio? To get so upset at Sam Adams, that, <laughs> that poor brewer. Victims would be stripped naked or to the waist with wood tar, sometimes boiling hot, then poured or painted on their prone, immobilized body. Feathers were then either thrown on the victim or they would be rolled around in a pile of feathers to adhere them to the tar. Victims would experience injuries ranging from life-threatening burns to chunks of skin being ripped off their bodies when the hardened tar was, you know, tried to be removed. Many loyalists or pro-British sympathizers were tarred and feathered in the years leading up to the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. In February of 1775, Dr. Abner Beebe, a loyalist living in East Haddam, Connecticut, was tarred and feathered before being taken to a hog sty and covered in hog dung. The dung was also smeared in his eyes and forced down his throat. All right, I thought the part with the poop was pretty funny, but the tarring and feathering was... (laughs) I thought it was too much. And all of this was done to him because he simply expressed pro-British sentiments. One of the worst pre-war tarrings and featherings occurred in August 1775 near Augusta, Georgia. Loyalist landowner Thomas Brown was confronted on his property by members of the Sons of Liberty. And after attempting to resist, Brown was beaten with a rifle, fracturing his skull. He was then stripped and tied to a tree. Hot pitch was poured all over him before he was set on fire, which almost immediately charred two of his toes to stubs. He was then feathered by his attackers, who proceeded to take a knife to his head and begin scalping him. Who do you, he was caught by uh, Brad Pitt and, and his band of uh, Nazi hunters? <sighs> I don't know. Brown somehow survived this ordeal. He took on the name Burnfoot and eventually became a lieutenant colonel in the King's Carolina Rangers on the side of the British, for understandable reasons. After the British loss in the war, he was exiled to British East Florida and then to St. Vincent's Island in the Caribbean, where he suffered lifelong headaches, not to mention the lack of two of his toes, from his 1775 torture. And by the way, both sides of the war used scalping quite liberally to mess with their foes. But it wasn't just those fighting uh, that were victims in the deadly years of the revolution. Civilians were often killed, and horrifically, women were often raped. Though accounts of British cruelty in this regard number far greater than any patriot accounts, not necessarily because the American side didn't partake in these atrocities, but because they were the eventual winners of the conflict, and they had a much heavier hand in writing the history. I'd argue there also weren't any British women around. Well, there were loyalist women. But one terrible incident was recounted by historian Holger Hook, who wrote the notable history Scars of Independence, America's Violent Birth, which examined the Revolutionary War through a much more violent lens than previous accounts. In an interview with Lenny Letter, Hook told the story of 13-year-old Abigail Palmer. 
In December 1776, British soldiers straying from their camp nearby Pennington, New Jersey, took control of the house of Abigail's grandfather, a farmer named Edmund Palmer. Over the course of three days, several British soldiers raped Abigail, Abigail's teenage friends, Elizabeth and Sarah Kane, and Abigail's aunt, Mary Phillips, who was pregnant at the time. As Hooks stated, quote, in a war not short of atrocities on all sides, this stands out as a horrific, harrowing ordeal endured by girls and women who, as far as we know, played no active part in the conflict. And there was no evidence to suggest any of the young women or girls were suspected revolutionary spies or that Edmund Palmer was involved in the Patriot cause in any way. Maybe that would make these actions some kind of horrible revenge, you know, understandable in that light. But Hook told Lenny Letter, quote, there's no evidence that these particular women were spies or couriers or otherwise actively aided the American war effort. The family does not seem to have been targeted for their allegiances. This was a crime of opportunity. Soldiers roaming the environs of their camp came across the women at the Palmer residence and then abused them systematically. Abigail's grandfather was at the house at the time and attempted to shield her and Elizabeth Kane when several soldiers pulled them both into a room, but ignoring their screams, they ravished them both. And those are quotes from the time period. The families of raped American women often pointed out that British soldiers maximized the humiliating and demoralizing impact of their attacks by assaulting women in front of their fathers, husbands, and other close relatives. Very similar to the uh, reports of the Golden State Killer, actually. Assaults on the... So so there were a whole army of... of, uh original night stalkers well this group was at least assaults on the honor of american men who assaults on the honor of american men who failed to protect their vulnerable women seemed as critical as defeat on the battlefield and unfortunately abigail and her fellow victims had no chance to charge their assailants with their brutal crimes or seek any justice in an american court Hook further stated that Abigail was, in fact, sought out by America's new leaders to tell her story. Quote, these men, and they were all men, of course, would deploy Abigail's story of personal suffering in their moral and propaganda war against the tyrannical British Empire. In the winter of 1776 to 77, the Continental Congress had appointed a committee to investigate British war crimes. They were asked to document not just battlefield atrocities and prisoner abuse, but also the, quote, lust and brutality of the soldiers and abusing of women. America's new leaders were acutely aware that rape would be more difficult to prove than any of the rest as the person abused, as well as the relations are generally reluctant against bringing matters of this kind into public notice. But George Washington himself identified specific New Jersey citizens who knew about rape cases, and a local justice of the peace was able to depose six girls and women in the area, including Abigail Palmer. So some moments of the harrowing deposition include Abigail's recounting that the soldiers threatened they would, quote, knock out her eyes if she did not hold her tongue. This deposition isn't happening in Independence Hall, is it? I don't think so. I okay, think it's probably just, at the New Jersey State House. I just feel like after what she's been through, she should be spared the, Ugh, the smell. smell. Yeah. They also threatened to poison the girls, to run a bayonet through their hearts, and to blow their brains out with musket fire. These are mostly children. When two of the girls were eventually carried off to the British camp on the third day of their ordeal, Elizabeth remembered, quote, 
they was both treated by some others of the soldiers in the same cruel manner. So basically, they just continued to be assaulted when they got to the camp. In summation, Hook reflected on the impact this testimony had on the Patriot cause. Quote, American reports on British atrocities powerfully turned the violated bodies of American men and women into moral assets for the revolutionary cause. But one key difference between stories of rape on the one hand and atrocities against military men on the other was how the actual bodies were the focus of the investigation and description, or not. The revolutionaries documented in great forensic detail the specific number and nature of wounds in the bodies of dead and injured soldiers in the aftermath of a massacre. Similarly, they evoked the malnourished, diseased bodies of surviving POWs. By contrast, investigations and propagandistic publications about rape downplayed the physical details, unlike in civilian courts at the time, which gathered evidence of cuts, bruises, and other signs of resistance and indications of recent sexual intercourse. If a raped American woman testified at a British court-martial, she was asked whether the alleged assailant had penetrated her and ejaculated to test the veracity of her accusations. Abigail Palmer's stories is just one of the myriad examples of how the revolution was a profoundly violent civil war in America and the British Empire that impacted not just combatants and captives, but also civilians of all ages and sexes, free, enslaved, and indigenous. Conventional narratives focused on the the era's ideals failed to capture their ordeals, and the selective remembering the whitewashing of violence had set in right after the revolution itself as the patriots wrote the American-on-American violence of America's first civil war out of the story. And here he's talking about American in terms of like loyalists versus patriots. Right. Over time, even the revolutionary era emphasis on the blood that the patriots themselves had shed in defense of their new nation and the sexual violation of their women— yielded to a strangely bloodless narrative of the war. So let's keep challenging that bloodless narrative. I bet that's partly because we became friends with England again pretty quickly. Pretty much, yeah. It was a popular notion at the time among European powers that captured prisoners of war had rights and should be treated at least somewhat respectfully. But um, in the Revolutionary War, any captured members of the Continental Army, because this was kind of a civil war, were seen as traitors of the crown, not just regular POWs. So therefore, they often received bloody, brutal, and oftentimes murderous treatment. If you've ever watched the film The Patriot, like we just did on July 4th... Carrie loves a Roland Emmerich. (laughs) I do, I do. I love Roland Emmerich. But anyway... You'll remember the super evil colonel played by Jason Isaacs, who went on to be a wonderful and sassy Lucius Malfoy in the Harry Potter movie series. His character in The Patriot, William Tavington, was based on a real guy, Bannister Tarleton, who had a pretty horrific reputation himself in real life. A real mustache twirler. Yeah. Similarly to in the film, Tarleton was commanded in the spring of 1780 to quell any rebellion attempting to rise up in the colony of South Carolina. On May 26th, Tarleton and his men defeated a group of rebels and surrounded them in what would become known as the Battle of Waxhaus or Buford's Massacre. The encircled men, totaling around 350, surrendered because they had lost. 
However, instead of imprisoning them at that point, as would be the traditional response, the British just kept on shooting the surrendering soldiers instead, killing 113 and eventually imprisoning 203. It's the old Saving Private Ryan. You know, what's he saying? Look, I washed my hands for supper. Yeah. In comparison, only 19 British troopers were killed in that battle. And so the event would go down in history as an example of British brutality against the rebellion. But it wouldn't only go down in history. It was a widespread story during the war and eventually inspired the phrase Tarleton's Quarter, a perfect example of the colonists' dark humor. Because they would offer... They would offer Tarleton's Quarter. And what is Tarleton's Quarter? It meant that the victor of a battle would discard the traditional rules of engagement and spare no mercy to the troops defeated in a conflict, killing everyone instead, like Tarleton did. So they're not giving a literal quarter. They're killing them. Yeah. Uh, And by the way, Tarleton in real life received no comeuppance like his film analog. Spoiler alert. He became a member of parliament after returning to Great Britain uh, in 1781 at the young age of 27. So he's only 26 when he's doing all this, by the way. And he enjoyed a long political career as a prominent opponent of British abolition. So Good guy. Yeah, it's unsurprising considering his father had been involved in and profited off the transatlantic slave trade and his grandfather owned slaves. It's a classy family. He had a real um, Mel Gibson figure who he failed to capture too, this guy Francis Marion. Mm-hmm. The Swamp Fox. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Well, we'll end with an exploration of some of the worst massacres that occurred in the Revolutionary War, all prefaced by one famous incident that we all learned about as school kids, the Boston Massacre. On March 5th, 1770, a group of nine British soldiers killed five people uh, out of a mob of three to four hundred after the mob began harassing them verbally and injuring them with projectiles, including clubs, rocks, and icy snowballs. Clamshells, sir. Clamshells. Mm-hmm. The British soldiers took the abuse until one fired without orders to do so from his captain, Thomas Preston. But then others began to fire after that first shot went off, killing three and wounding eight, with two more later dying of their wounds. This is the first episode of the John Adams series, right? It is. Listener, please. Go watch it. It's on eight, It's, no, on, it's Max. on Max. It's on, excuse me. Pardon me. Eight soldiers, one officer, and four civilians were arrested and charged with murder. And yes, they were defended by future U.S. President John Adams, because he was a lawyer. And the trial is portrayed in the first episode of the miniseries. Six British soldiers were acquitted and two were convicted of manslaughter and given reduced sentences and branded on their hands. The event was notable due to its depictions in reports and propaganda distributed throughout the colonies, including a notable colored engraving created by Paul Revere. It's like uh, basically a political cartoon of the day. The spread of this extremely anti-British version of the story, which kind of portrayed the troops as these like blood-hungry fiends that fired on an innocent crowd. Um, It really heightened colonist versus loyalist tensions and eventually became known as one of the most significant events to turn colonial sentiments against British authority. John Adams later wrote, quote, the foundation of American independence was laid on March 5th, 1770. 
And Samuel Adams, his cousin, along with other patriots, commemorated the day annually as Massacre Day to encourage the public to embrace independence. I wonder if that's a a baseball day at Fenway. Oh, it's Massacre Day. Tomorrow's Bobblehead Day. Yeah, they all hand out clamshells and you throw them at the Empire. (laughs) Oh, God. Two 1778 massacres elevated the Boston incidents' death tolls significantly. The Wyoming Massacre in Wyoming Valley, Pennsylvania, kicked off when British allied Native American forces, led by British Colonel John Butler and Seneca Chief Joseph Brandt, attacked American settlers in the Wyoming Valley. The Native American warriors, along with British soldiers, launched a surprise attack on the unprotected and vulnerable settlement, resulting in hundreds of deaths estimated to be around 300 men, women, and children. I think we got them. Yeah. The Cherry Valley Massacre in Cherry Valley, New York, was a similar situation. British allied Native American forces, led by Mohawk Chief Joseph Brandt, attacked the American... This guy loved loved the massacre. (laughs) ...attacked the American settlement of Cherry Valley, specifically targeting the civilian population, including women, children, and elderly residents. The settlement was left in ruins, and many captives were taken. Around 30 Patriot soldiers and about 60 civilians, many women and children, were killed. Lastly, we have an incident close to our home, the Battle of Groton Heights, or the Fort Griswold Massacre, which occurred in 1781 in Groton, Connecticut. Fort Griswold was a strategically important fortification located on the eastern bank of the Thames River in Connecticut. Uh, It served as a defensive position guarding the port of New London, which was a vital supply base for the American cause and thus seen as a logical point of attack. Indeed, British troops launched an attack on Fort Griswold on September 6, 1781, with the objective of disrupting American naval operations, and they wanted to seize supplies, inflict damage to the Patriot cause, and they did. Um, A force of approximately 800 troops, including Hessians and Loyalist militia, landed near Groton and advanced towards the fort. Oh my God. I mean, if you you take Groton, you cut off the Patriot's... uh antiques and artisan candy supply completely. Uh, Nowadays, certainly. Uh, And definitely go to the area for antiques and artisan candies and um, handmade ice creams, too. Mm. But uh, the American defenders of the fort only numbered about 150 to 200, and they were woefully undermanned for this battle. Despite their numerical disadvantage, the American troops, led by Colonel William Ledyard, fiercely resisted the British assault, and they mounted a valiant defense and inflicted heavy casualties on the attacking forces. But however, uh, after intense fighting, a British assault party managed to breach the fort's defenses, and recognizing the untenable situation, Colonel Ledyard of the American side ordered a surrender to prevent further bloodshed. And did he prevent further bloodshed? Well, in like in Tarleton's case, the terms of surrender would be violated. After the American troops surrendered, some British soldiers disregarded the customary rules of war and carried out acts of extreme violence against the defeated defenders. Accounts suggest that bayonet charges, shootings, and brutal acts of violence were perpetrated against the Americans. And one of the most poignant moments of the massacre came um, with the fate of Colonel Ledyard himself. 
After he handed his sword to the British officer in command, the officer, reportedly in a fit of rage, stabbed Ledyard with his own sword, killing him instantly. So it's very Jason Isaacs in the Patriot coded. But I wish I knew what uh, snappy American one-liner had, had gotten him so PO'd. Oh, yeah, right. The massacre resulted in over 80 American soldiers and civilians being killed, many of whom were bayoneted or executed after surrendering. The British also suffered significant casualties during the assault, but again, nowhere near the same extent. Much of New London was also burned to the ground by the British after the battle, adding further insult to brutal injury. The Fort Griswold massacre came to symbolize the brutality and inhumanity of the war, particularly when surrendering soldiers were being subjected to violence and um, kind of highlighted the harsh realities faced by both sides during the war and the desire for vengeance by those who felt victimized by the British. It would be one of the last British victories in North America before the end of the Revolutionary War, perhaps due to that very anger stirred up by the actions of the Loyalist troops. Notably, one of the commanders on the British side uh, during the massacre was infamous traitor Benedict Arnold. Mm. He was given command of the forces for the raid because he was a native of nearby Norwich, Connecticut, and uh, that was just up the river. So in essence, Arnold was leading the charge to murder many of his neighbors, some of which he likely knew as a resident of the area, maybe some that he knew all his life. Unsurprisingly, Arnold and his family fled to London after the end of the war instead of returning to his hometown. I wonder why. Good choice. Yeah, he couldn't go back to Philadelphia either. Certainly not. I'll end our discussion today with a final quote from Holger Hook, who honestly, I'd love to chat with sometime because he seems like a pretty learned historian. But um, Hook concluded in his Lenny Letter interview, quote, Today, in our age of armed conflicts worldwide, of genocide and debates about the nature of patriotism, Americans seem to cling to the revolution as their last great romance with war. But I would argue it is precisely because we face an uncertain world of insurgencies, civil wars, and failed states that Americans should confront their own tumultuous origins and be alert to the potential pitfalls of pursuing moral objectives by violent means. And I think that is important to keep in mind, especially now. We romanticize this time period because we romanticize freedom and patriotism. But freedom always comes at a cost. Sometimes that cost is a room filled with dozens of sweaty, stinking, miserable men trying desperately to kickstart a revolution. But more horrifically, uh, that cost has been the lives and dignities of people of all walks of life, of both, both sides of conflict, soldiers along with women, children, and other innocents. And it's a cost that we should never forget when we idealize our founding fathers and the American Revolution to this day. Perhaps we are better humans now, certainly more hygienic, but overall (laughs) less cruel, or perhaps not. It is is one of the cleaner revolutions in history, though. I mean, if you want to look at a messy one. Well, not literally clean. No, well, in history, though. (laughs) Okay, of all time, maybe. If you want to look at a really messy one, you can go back and listen to our guillotine episode, because the French knew how to do a messy revolution. Yeah, we, were, we didn't talk much about the stinkiness of that one, but um, I'm sure it was pretty stinky. I mean, just the, just the literal blood in the gutters, you know. Yeah. 
and Versailles. Well, that goes without saying. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. It's true crime time. Our story this episode comes from our listener, Theo, who called into our voicemail box to suggest a news topic for this week. Thanks, Theo. Yeah, if you'd like to get in touch with us and even be featured on the show as well, it doesn't have to be a news topic. You can just call in about your opinions about Bohemian Grove and, you know, I promise I won't cut you off like um, Alex Jones did. <laughs> 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 we didn't talk about that in our episode, but... um. No, it wasn't uh, Alex Jones. It was uh, all, all oh, of the yes, various yes. conservative radio hosts. Uh, I was thinking of Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Funny stuff. We'll talk about that on the Patreon. But if you'd like to get in touch with us, be featured on the show, give us a ring at 203-666-5529. Here's what Theo had to say. Hi, Sean and Carrie. My name is Theo, and uh, I really enjoy your show. And I wanted to write in about a... A very strange local news story that I've been following for a while. So I'm from Salem, Massachusetts, a very spooky town. Um, but we had a unexpectedly spooky situation back in the spring when a local store, the next town over called Cat's Creepy Creations and the owner who lives here in Salem, uh, she had her, her store and her home investigated by the FBI. Not much information was released at the time, but Kat, the artist, made and sold art using human skeletal remains, so everyone was pretty sure that it was related to that. Uh, Many people are surprised to hear that there is no federal law against buying and selling human remains, Um, and it is technically illegal in Massachusetts, but it is not strongly enforced, especially when it comes to skeletal, skeletal material. It's also very common for human remains being sold to be de-identified, which means that the seller does not disclose who the remains belong to and how they were obtained. Um, And a lot of times the seller probably doesn't even know because they bought them from someone else who bought them from someone else. Um, So my background is in biological anthropology, which is essentially the study of skeletons. Um, And I've worked with a lot of human remains and learned a lot and thought a lot about the ethics of dealing with them, uh, what is and is not appropriate. I've worked on remains that we hope to have repatriated someday. Um, So naturally, I was very interested in this story when it broke, but there wasn't really much information available and there were no updates for quite some time. 
until this June when I was scrolling through my social media and saw a headline that read, Human Body Parts from Harvard Morgue Sold, Shipped by Manager. So I was shocked to discover that not only had the manager at the Harvard Med School Morgue been selling human remains that had been donated for educational purposes at the school, um, alongside his wife, uh, they were bringing them to their home in New Hampshire and then sending them to other states. Uh, but the owner of Cap's Creepy Creations was one of his clients. Um, so she allegedly had even gone into the morgue to pick out specific things that she wanted. The details are pretty horrifying, and there's a lot of them. Uh, and I don't want to make this voicemail like eight minutes long. Um, but I will say that there was a total lack of respect for the dead and their loved ones and that it's a much more bizarre story than I had ever expected based on the FBI raid back in the spring. Uh, so right now, the morgue manager, his wife, Cat uh, of Cat's Creepy Creations, and one other alleged customer have all been charged with the federal crime of unlawful transport across state lines. I got cut off because <laughs> it was too long. Um, but I was basically done. All I wanted to say is that um, – uh, I don't know what's going to happen going forward with the case, but I really hope that this story brings this issue to people's attention and that we see less buying and selling of human remains and that my heart just goes out to all of the families of uh, people who chose to donate their bodies to science who have been affected by this. Um, thanks so much for listening. And if you ever want some off the beaten path recommendations for things to do in Salem, I am happy to provide that. Bye. Thank you so, so much, Theo, for getting in touch with us and bringing to light this fascinating news story. I had heard snippets about this story through my Salem connected channels of Facebook groups and the like, but this gave me the opportunity to really dive into the details of this very dark tale. So yes, a recent federal indictment alleged that dissected human body parts, including heads, brains, skin, and bones, were stolen by the manager of a morgue at Harvard Medical School in Boston and uh, taken to New Hampshire prior to being sold and sometimes shipped through the U.S. Postal Service. Wasn't this H.H. Holmes' favorite scam? Yeah, I mean, it's very Victorian body snatching, but apparently people are still doing it. The morgue manager identified in the indictment, Cedric Lodge, is accused of stealing portions of dissected cadavers and bringing them to his home in Goffstown, New Hampshire, as well as selling the remains along with his wife, Denise. The body parts came from cadavers donated to Harvard to be used for medical purposes, and Harvard Medical School, in a statement commenting on the case, said the actions were morally reprehensible and an abhorrent betrayal. Lodge was fired on May 6th, and Harvard Medical School is trying to determine which donor cadavers may have been affected by the crime. Wildly, part of the indictment addresses those who purchased these remains, who allegedly include Katrina McLean of Salem, Massachusetts, and Joshua Taylor of West Lawn, Pennsylvania. McLean owned and operated Cat's Creepy Creations in Peabody, Massachusetts. Oh, no. It's really a shock. I have never shopped there. If it was actually in Salem, who knows? I might have made the purchase none the wiser. But most of these, you know, body snatchings and selling of body parts and things like that, they are to people who have kind of a, an interest in the macabre, a cabinet of curiosities. I don't know if I would ever have human remains. Uh, 
it's really hard to make sure that your human remains are ethically sourced. Exactly. And what does that even mean? Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, someone who might have purchased a bone thinking that it was just a bone might be purchasing a stolen bone. The indictment states, at times, Cedric Lodge used his access to the morgue to allow Katrina McLean, Joshua Taylor, and others to enter the morgue and choose what remains to purchase. Wow. Oh, that's so like nice. A gros- like a, I'll have that one. Like a Chinese fish market. Mm-hmm. Examples cited in the indictment include Katrina McLean agreeing to sell two dissected human faces for $600 in October 2020 and shipping human skin to one Jeremy Pauly who was hired in July 2021 to tan the skin to create leather in exchange for more human skin. So do you think you just put that in one of those cardboard tubes and roll it up? I mean, how are you shipping it? <sighs> I don't know. Hopefully one of those like HelloFresh kind of boxes. Box. Yeah. The skin was subsequently shipped back to McLean in Massachusetts. Between September 3rd, 2018 and July 12th, 2021, Joshua Taylor made 39 electronic payments totaling over $37,000 to a PayPal account controlled by Denise Lodge. In a memo attached to a transaction on May 19th, 2019. You don't need you don't need your record keeping to be this good. He wrote head number seven. No. So, yeah, this is like the Venmo caption, you know. Another transaction was captioned in the peak of dark humor, brains. Oh, no. Yeah. Like he's a zombie. Mm-hmm. And they were brains. Charges listed in the grand jury indictment of the Lodges, McLean, and Taylor include conspiracy and interstate transport of stolen goods. Paulie was arrested last summer and charged with abuse of a corpse, receiving stolen property, and dealing in the proceeds of unlawful activities following a report from someone who found human remains inside several buckets in his basement. A forensic pathologist later confirmed the remains in question were human body parts, including brains, heart, kidney, spleen, livers, lungs, and skin. And if that person was a new girlfriend, red flag. Oh, red flag anyway. According to WCTB, Harvard Medical School has created a list of contact information and other resources for families of donors who may have been affected, along with creating an external panel of experts to evaluate the anatomical gift program and the morgue policies with the goal of improving security for the program. So, yeah, let's hope. Thanks again, Theo. Thank you, Theo. This will in no way haunt my dreams. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain'titscary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google Voice number 203-666-5529 And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. We certainly will be forever grateful. And special thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons. Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Ozzy Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, and Derek. We love you guys. Thank you very much for joining us. 
See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McKay. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel. Music is a verb. Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com (laughs) 